You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. Please be seated. It's uh, very special to be with all of you today. This was not an originally planned Sunday when Pastor Landon will ask me months in advance to come in. And then uh, the last few times he's asked me, hey, we're doing a series on this. Could you, could you speak on this subject or this subject? So I've been happy to do it. It just turned out I was going to be here today. And then later this week, SLS, it's our... You, go ahead. There we are. All right. <clears throat> Here once a month to pour into the students, but this was not previously scheduled, so I've been really opening my heart. What did he want to say to us? Just a prophetic now word. And with events in Israel unfolding yesterday, I, I, I really felt strongly this morning to go in that direction, which we will in a moment. But I want to say something uh, to honor and appreciate Mercy Culture. So the worship, the, the first service was powerful. And, and wonderful, but of course, there's not much focus on Israel. When I brought my message and having God's heart, which, which you'll hear in a bit, um, it blessed me to see just prayer for Israel incorporated into the worship. In, in other words, you don't just have a fixed thing you do. And, and trust me, there are plenty of places they love the Lord, but they don't have the capability to shift. So that, that blessed me to see that happen. A- amen. And... A lot, of, a lot of places, no matter what you preach on, you have to leave the people happy at the end. It doesn't matter what the subject is, you have to leave happy because that's the rule. You have to leave church happy. Are you happy? I'm happy. We're happy. Praise the Lord. Well, it's not always time for happiness, right? So we ended the first service with just serious prayer and intercession. So thank you, Chris, for leading us and appreciate that. Okay, before I get into the message, just want to share one thing with you. You've been in a steady outpouring of the Spirit as long as mercy culture has existed. And the the beautiful presence of God that was here this morning has been steadily with you over the years. Uh, But there are other churches in America where similar things are happening and the spiritual tide has been rising. Many of them also start the year with prayer and fasting or have a strong emphasis there. There there are a lot of common things. But until right before COVID, I was grieved because America is obviously in moral and spiritual freefall and in need of an awakening. But I didn't see a lot of desperation in many churches. I didn't see a lot of burden and brokenness. In the years leading up to the Brownsville revival, I saw a, a lot of brokenness and hunger and crying out but I wasn't seeing that much. Shortly before COVID, I began to see things shift. And then it's like all hell broke loose on the nation, which is also part of the shaking that, that happens as, as God's beginning to move. And then uh, I began to see in my spirit thousands of fires all over America, holy fires. In other words, not just one place where everybody comes flocking, but thousands of places where the fire of God is falling and the spirit is moving all over the nation. And as I was traveling and ministering, I'd be in more places like Mercy Culture. There's a lot lot that's very unique here. 
but other places where the, the hunger was there, the altars were filled, young people going after God. And I, I, I began to sense, okay, there, there's a fresh wave. Something has hit. So early this year, uh, I got on radio. This is my daily show, radio podcast. And uh, I'm, I, I don't just throw words out, even though it's daily talk radio and it's five hours a week and all that. I don't just throw words out. And many of my listeners are not charismatic or Pentecostal. And I'm sometimes the only charismatic guy they listen to. They wonder why I hang out with all these weird people, you know. <laughs> and so I'm circumspect when I speak, but, but I, I knew it was time to speak it. And I said, I, I just want to announce this. I've known it for some time, but I want to announce that the first wave of the next revival has already hit America. The, the beginning of the first wave has hit. It was about eight days after I said that on radio that revival fell at Asbury College. And suddenly the whole nation is talking about it. And then within a few weeks, they had to shut down the public meetings, which was wise. They had 50,000 people flooding a town of 6,000. And I knew that's not the way it's supposed to be. And of course, everything's dispersed. Campuses all over America have been hit by the Spirit. So I'm in church after church seeing amazing things happening. So when I was in Brownsville during the revival, you're jealous to see God do everything he's promised. And you realize God starts things many times and they don't reach their goal. We get in the way. So I started to write a book called How to Mess Up a Move of God. All the things you don't want to do if you want to see the move continue. But I only started it. I never finished it. Last year, I realized I got to get this book out. I got to get this finished. I got to get this book out. So went back to it, finished the book, and we can put the, the slide up. It's called Seize the Moment. So grab your phone, take a picture of the QR code there. Seize the Moment, How to Fuel the Fires of Revival. It's 25 short chapters, and each one will grip you. When God starts moving, when the Holy Spirit falls, it could be in your own life, it could be in a small group, it could be on a campus where you are, it could be in your church. When the fire falls, what do you do? How do you keep the fire burning? What are the key principles to see the move go deeper? Seize the moment. How to fuel the fires of revival. The book officially comes out in January, but we're going to get first copies in November. So the first printing, we just do a special thing where it's signed and numbered. So it's kind of like a collector's edition, but I'll, I'll personally sign and put a scripture verse in. I always think of what's the right verse to go with this book. And you can kind of have it as a collector's edition. So That'll be out November. You can pre-order it now, and we'll be shipping in just a, a, a couple of weeks, hopefully, um, or early November. You see, though, it says, From Revival to Reformation, book one. Book two is finished as well. That'll come out in May, and that's called Turn the Tide, How to Ignite a Cultural Awakening. Once the Holy Spirit begins to move, once revival fires are there, how do you go from outpouring to awakening? How do you go from revival to reformation? How do you see lasting change come to a society? So that's these, these two books, the first one coming out, as I said, shortly. So grab, grab a hold of that. If you have pastor friends or other leaders, get a copy for them. I believe it's going to help deepen what God is doing. All right, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, we love you and we honor you. And we as your children really want to know your heart. And we really 
want you to share your heart with us. And we ask you, God, to take us deeper, not to treat us just like little babies, but as mature and growing children who can know the Father's heart. Take us deeper. Share your heart with us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have any scriptures to put up for you or quotes to put up for you simply because God dropped this in my heart uh, last night and this morning, but we'll have time to turn to these passages. We're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 9. This will parallel the message I preached in the first service, but will not be identical. And if you're ministered to by this, you may want to listen to the message in the first service. I, I really didn't know if I was going to get through the service or the message because my heart was so burdened. And as we were worshiping in the first service, I, it was just hard for me to fully enter in because my heart was so torn. And at one point, Pastor Chris got up and said, let's just give God acceptable worship, whether it's jumping or clapping or on your face or on your knees. I just, I just fell to my knees and began sobbing because the, the reality of, of suffering hit me at that moment. And it was hard to get through the message. But whether it's with tears or not, I know this comes from the, the depth of my being. We'll start in Jeremiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. Here the prophet speaks on behalf of the nation. Jeremiah preached to his people for over 40 years and preached repentance and wept, known as the weeping prophet, because he saw the judgment that was going to come. Remember in Luke 19, Jesus, Yeshua, weeps over Jerusalem because he sees the terrible suffering that's going to come. The prophets would see things as if they were happening in front of their eyes, see the reality, see the pain, and warn their people, repent before this happens, repent before judgment comes. But they didn't repent. So here he speaks on behalf of the people. The harvest is past. The summer has ended. And we are not saved. Then he speaks for himself. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? And then these words which I'll quote to you in Hebrew, me Oh, that my head were waters, my eyes a fountain of tears. I'd bewail day and night the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them for they're all adulterers, a crowd of, of unfaithful people. The burden... And his heart is so deep, he wished he had more tears. He wished he could have a greater way of expressing the grief. Then verse 3, many translations will have quotation marks. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. But there are no quotation marks in the Hebrew. And, and when you're reading it, something's striking here. I worked for years writing a commentary on Jeremiah. 
and was overwhelmed with this as it became deeper and more real to me. I'm going to read verse 2 again. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them for they're all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a boat to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. It raises the question, well, who's speaking here? It looked like Jeremiah was speaking, but then it suddenly transitions to God speaking. And when I dug into this, it was fascinating to see many commentators wrestle with that. Is that God speaking? Or is it Jeremiah speaking? Or is it one and the same? Because the prophet carried the burden of God. Is God saying metaphorically, I wish I had more tears to weep for the destruction coming on my people? If Yeshua represents the heart of the Father, wept over Jerusalem, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can we say metaphorically speaking that God weeps over the suffering of his people? Richard Wormbrand persecuted, imprisoned for a period of many years, horrific torture. His wife Sabina in a slave labor camp in Romania. As I spent time with them in their old age, I never met human beings like them. The, there was a Christ-likeness about them. There was something extraordinary, but they had been through hell. They had been through torture and suffering and had seen so much suffering in the Romanian church. And Richard Wormbrand told a story that there was a, a pastor in Romania in prison and it was maddening to hear the screams of people being tortured, screams and moans and cried day and night. He was overwhelmed. And, and he cried out to the Lord. And this is his own experience. I'm not making a theology out of it, but this was his experience. He cried out to the Lord and he said, he said, Lord, could I just have a respite? Could, could you just lift me out of this prison cell for a moment just so I could come into your presence and, and just get out of this, the, the pain and the screaming and the agony. But as he began to ascend in his spirit into the presence of God, the closer he got to God, the louder the cries. And he said, Lord, is, is it heaven a place of joy? Well, of course it's a place of joy. And in his presence is fullness of joy. And the, the angels are continually rejoicing before him for over one sinner who gets saved. That's happening day and night. And, and yet, it's not only joy. How can there be only joy when there's so much suffering and pain? Are we not created in the image of God? And, and, and are we not called to grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn? Do we think our God is just always having a party? as his people are suffering and hurting and dying. And when he, this prisoner says, Lord, I, I thought heaven was a place of joy. And in this vision, the Lord says to him, you've misread the scripture. Have you not read in Exodus 2 that the cries of the children of Israel came up to me? Have you not read about Jesus that he was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow and pain? I, I want you to look at some verses with me. God wants to share his heart with us. 
Leonard Ravenhill was the greatest man of prayer I ever knew. He died in 1994 at the age of 87. And God supernaturally connected us when he was 82 years old. I was 34. God supernaturally brought us together. And I was overwhelmed when he asked me if I would be his friend. Praying with him was like nothing else I'd ever done. The, the depth of his heart, the depth of his devotion, the brokenness, the burden that he carried. I, I saw him preach when he was 82 and frail to, to four and a half thousand people in Anaheim. And he, he couldn't finish his message, his message of repentance. And he couldn't finish the message because weeping and crying broke out in the congregation. And, and there was a conference, all these people, their leaders, believers, and, and he couldn't finish preaching. The whole place was like a battleground, everybody on their face, weeping, wailing through the whole building. He couldn't finish preaching. But it's because of the depth in his heart. You can't give what you, you don't have. If we have a superficial relationship with God, a relationship of just what's in it for me, and I just want to be blessed and happy and, and prosperous, and we don't, we don't care about suffering and burden. We don't care about what's happening to others. We, we don't care about sharing God's heart. We're not going to impact people. You can only impact others to the extent God has impacted you. Leonard Ravenhill came up to speak at our congregation in Maryland and some churches in the area. 82 years old, he stayed at our home with his wife Martha and son Paul. And as he was leaving on that Monday morning, on the way out, he said, Mike, I'm asking God to trust us with a little more of his travail. And I thought, what a concept. It's something sacred that if you're close enough to him and serious enough and mature enough, he's saying, I'm going to share a little more of my heart with you. Come on, those of you who are married, you share things with each other that you won't share with other people. You share things individuals with a circle of close friends that you wouldn't share with a stranger. And a lot of us have relationships with God, especially in America, where we're more strangers than intimates. We, we kind of go to God to, to get blessed and have our needs met and, and keep our life happy, but, but we don't want to really hear his heart. Let's look at a few other verses I mentioned this from Exodus 2, but let's, let's just read this. Spiritual reality here. I'm not talking about walking around depressed. I'm, I'm not talking about the attack of Satan. I'm talking about an intimacy with God where his heart becomes our heart. An intimacy with God where he trusts us enough to share some of his travail. So the children of Israel in Egypt, in bondage, Look at what it says, verse 23 of Exodus 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Go over to Judges, Judges chapter 10. Another call for repentance after Israel falls into sin, after Israel's committing idolatry and their call to turn back. Verse 15, the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best. 
but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. God's heart burdened and affected because of the suffering of his people. Go over to Isaiah chapter 22. The prophet sees a vision of judgment coming on Jerusalem. The prophet sees in front of his eyes what's going to unfold, and he's devastated. Isaiah 22. And look at what he says in verse 4. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. And John Calvin commenting on that said that what befalls the church, the sufferings that God's people go through, should affect us as if it happened to each of us individually. Some years ago, I noticed that my wife Nancy just didn't seem to be herself and I asked her, I was on my way out the door one day going to my office. I asked her, hey, hon, is everything okay? Are you all right? She goes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go about my business. A few days later, late at night, laying in bed, just about to fall asleep, just about to, hon, uh, everything all right? You okay? Yeah. Mm. Okay, I'm out. I'm asleep. A few days later, it's the middle of the day, nothing's going on. I sat down with her. I said, hey, hon, are you okay? You don't seem yourself? She said, oh, here's what's going on. And she started to unburden herself and tell me everything that was going on. I said, well, hon, how come you didn't tell me the other day? She said, well, you didn't care. She said, if you cared, you wouldn't ask because you're on your way out the door or right before you fall asleep. In other words, I was not worthy for her to share her heart. I did not deserve here if I, and, and it's true. Hey, everything, everything okay? Yeah, I'm going through the crisis of my life. Okay, I'll see you later. <laughs> but, but that's how many of us are with God. He would gladly share more of his heart with us if we really wanted it, if we really cared that deeply. Look, I've said for years that the American gospel is basically, this is who I am, this is how I feel, and God is here to please me. And the biblical gospel is this is who God is. This is how he feels. And we're here to please him. I'm thinking back almost 25 years ago. I got overwhelmingly burdened with the suffering of the world. And I'm normally full of faith and hope and optimism. And, and today's good. Tomorrow's going to be better. I mean, it's just the way I live. It's the way I think. It's the way I feel. I, I have this I don't care what bad news I get hit with. I almost bounce back always with seeing the redemptive side of it. People tell me something absolutely horrific, and I'm immediately thinking, okay, here's how God could redeem it. Here's how good could come out of it. It's terribly painful. I'm going to weep with you now. But man, I could see something good coming out of it. I mean, I live like that. It's just my, my spiritual reflex. And I'm, I'm constantly dealing with difficult issues, with hard issues, with, with some of the worst things happening in the world and the society around us. And, and because of that, I have to be wired a certain way because otherwise you, you, know, you lose your mind, you get depressed. And instead, I'm always full of faith and confidence and, and we can take the land and Jesus is going to do it. And I live like that all the time. I just got overwhelmingly burdened. There was so much suffering and pain in the world. I mean, at any given moment, Every, every second of every day, there's agony. Every second of every day, people are hurting, people are dying, 
Children are starving. Someone's being kidnapped. Someone's being tortured. Some, some terrible diagnosis, a sudden car wreck. I mean, every second of every day, something terrible is happening. That's the reality. And, and it's impossible for us to even grasp that. In fact, one of the challenges today is we're getting more news than human beings are capable of handling. That the constant bombardment, if here's the latest episode, just watch it on your cell phone as it, as it unfolds. Read this here. It's this constant bombardment. It's, it's more than we can take, more than we can handle. But I just became overwhelmed. And one of my friends, we lived in Maryland, and one of my friends from Long Island was on the phone with me, and he never heard me talk. He goes, Mike, I'm, I'm going on to a fast. I'm going to start fasting. I want to come and just pray with you for a few days. And, and so he's fasting and feeling this burden, and, and suddenly the Lord just begins to show me he's, he's sensitizing my heart because he wants to take me deeper. You can't live like that all the time. But, but look, what does scripture say in Ecclesiastes 3? There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. So there are seasons. I'm not talking about being depressed. I'm not talking about just in our, in our own lives where we're going through ups and downs. There are seasons where God will share something with us and it's overwhelming and you feel like there's no way out of this. But what I learned is, okay, go with that because those who sow with tears will reap with joy. Amen. It's out of feeling the weight and feeling the agony and feeling the pain. It, it, it's out of that that we get to this place of brokenness and prayer and crying out. And boom, when the answer comes, it's glorious. I've seen over the years that some of the most important things in my life have been birthed out of that agony and that desperation. What does it say in Romans 8? That we don't know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, through us, with groanings that can't be uttered in human speech. And, and the Greek word used for groanings there is the same word for groanings that I just read from Exodus. The, the, the groaning, the pain, the sigh of Israel went up to God. And that's how, think of it, that's how the Spirit prays through us. That's the pain of the burden. And God's looking for people who will share his heart. He's looking for people that will be more intimate with him. He's looking for people that are not like me on the way out the door asking my wife how she's doing, but, but sit down and look in your eye because we care and we carry it and it matters. I want to read a quote to you from Basilea Schlink. She was a Christian leader in the days of Hitler, a courageous woman that stood up to the ugliness of the Nazis a great friend of Israel, great woman of prayer for the Jewish people and then the nation of Israel. And she found out what was called the Evangelical Sisterhood of Mary, where these women just devoted the rest of their lives to, to prayer and, and service. Basilea Schlink said this, anyone who loves as much as God does cannot help suffering. And anyone who really loves God will sense that he is suffering. You think, well, what does that even mean? How can we comprehend that? But again, if we're created in his image, if, if Jesus shows us who the Father is, then until full redemption has come, there's a pain in God's heart. We had offices in Maryland that were right across from a funeral parlor. And... Sometimes on my way out, 
there'd be a funeral about to take place and people showing up and loved ones seeing each other and you're, you're, they're holding each other and crying. And, and I would pray a little prayer on the way out. I'd see it, Lord, comfort them, be with them in the midst of this, let light come out of the darkness. But that was it. I went on with my day. Well, because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know the people. But, but if it's someone you know, then it's a whole different story. When you hear it's a loved one of yours that was taken, then it's a whole different story. Well, how does God feel? If God himself is love, how does he feel? She quoted, Bessalia Schling quoted a Japanese Lutheran theologian named Kazo Kitamori. He wrote a book called The Theology of the Pain of God after World War II. He said, the heart of the gospel was revealed to me as the pain of God. This revelation led me to the path which the prophet Jeremiah had trodden. And he quotes Jeremiah 31.20. I just want to read that to you. Jeremiah 31.20. Listen to what God says here. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight, though I often speak against him? I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion, declares the Lord. Even as I'm rebuking Israel and it's saying, that's my boy, that's my kid. My heart still yearns for him. Kitamori said this, Jeremiah was a man who saw the heart of God most deeply. He said, I was allowed to experience the depths of God's heart with Jeremiah. We dare to speak about this pain of God. We must pronounce the words, pain of God as if we are allowed to speak them only once in our lifetime those who will be held the pain of God cease to be loquacious seek to be wordy and open their mouths only by the passion to bear witness to it there are passages in Jeremiah like Jeremiah 9 where God says call for the wailing women in, in the ancient Middle East you still even have the custom but you would have mourners you would have people who would be professional mourners they would come and weep and, and wail at a funeral and he says call for the wailing women to come and let them weep and wail over us and when you realize wait, wait, it's God inviting them to come and wail over us who's the us and some Jewish interpreter said the us is is God and the people wail over us we're experiencing this pain together. So yesterday, we wake up to shocking news. The darkest day in the history of, of modern Israel. An absolute shocking series of events. So it was Sukkot, which is tabernacles. And this is a joyous feast and the last day of the feast is a special time of rejoicing. In Jewish tradition, it's known as Simchat Torah, the joy of the Torah. And this is when the Torah cycle is finished, reading the, the Torah through annually in the synagogue. Of course, Jews study much more than that, but this is done annually. And when the cycle is completed, it, it works out to finish at this time. So it's a special time of joy, celebration. And you can go to the Communities with lots of Orthodox Jews and there's be hours of dancing in the streets and it's the high point of celebration. It was also a Sabbath. 50 years ago, the first Sabbath of October was the Yom Kippur War. 
Israel caught off guard, just as America was caught off guard 9-11. These things happened tragically. Israel was caught off guard. And on the holiest day of the year, as they're in synagogues praying and fasting, they were attacked primarily by Egypt and others. And it was terrible bloodshed and a dark, dark time in Israel's history. Well, Israel just celebrated its 75th anniversary. And here this was the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur, almost to the day. And Israel was caught completely off guard by an invasion from Hamas, by land, by sea, by air, even in these paragliders coming in, and then thousands of bombs being dropped. And it's, it's a massive failure of Israeli intelligence. It's a shocking failure because something like this would require months of coordination and planning, at least. And there's clear evidence. In fact, Hamas has said, yes, Iran is with us in this. There's speculation that as Israel gets closer to a peace agreement with Saudi Arabia, Iran is trying to sabotage everything. You say, why would Israel and Saudi Arabia have peace? Why would Saudi Arabia want it? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Iran is considered the arch enemy of Saudi Arabia and these other countries because the Saudi Arabians and, and most of the other Muslim countries are, are Sunni Muslims and Iran is Shiite. And that division goes back to the earliest generations of Muslims. So the, the, the difference between Sunni and Shiite Muslims is deeper than the difference that Muslims have with Israel, many of them. So that's what's happening here. That could be some of what's going on. But I begin to get reports as they've invaded, just taken over small towns and, 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 and kibbutzim, these, these collective farms and communities where people live. And you're hearing these horrible reports. And at first, it's, it's 40 dead and 100 wounded. You thought, what? No. How could this be? And then the reports start pouring in. They're just taking over communities and just slaughtering people in cold blood. So walking into the home, killing the mother, the father, the kids, killing the grandparents in three generations. Boom, boom, just slaughtering them. One of our friends sends out a report from Israel and says, they're friends of ours with terrorists in their home right now. They were hiding. They had to hide for three hours before the terrorists left. Somehow they, they, they weren't found. The reports start growing. Over 250 dead. Over 1,900 wounded. And hundreds, apparently, taken hostage. This has never happened. This has never happened. And you have to realize with these numbers that, that the Jewish population of Israel is, is almost one-fiftieth, more than one-fortieth the size of, of America. In other words, this is much more devastating than 9-11. Picture 9-11 Picture the casualty numbers being substantially higher than the horrors that, that they were. It touched our family. My, my wife's brother, Douglas, was killed in the Twin Towers. Multiply those numbers, but then think of thousands of Americans taken hostage to Afghanistan. I mean, this is the horror of what's happened. But you see some of the videos. Here's a young Israeli woman. being they, they got her boyfriend with hands behind his back, carrying him away, and she's being taken away on a motorcycle, screaming, don't kill me. Now interviews with the father, weeping. The family wanted the pictures to get out to see what's happening. 
Another family said, that's our daughter. There she is, she's stripped naked, soldiers sitting on top of her. The people spit on her as they go drive through in Gaza. Bodies of Israeli soldiers just being stamped on and trampled by mobs as they celebrate. Children, babies taken hostage. There's grandmother in wheelchair taken hostage. Nothing like this has ever happened. And, and, and the, the, the shock through the nation, the pain, the agony through the nation is overwhelming. And when you carry this, there is no earthly solution. There, there is no just snap your fingers and here's the solution. And, and our goal when we have a heart for Israel doesn't mean we're anti-Palestinian. Doesn't mean we just want to see them suffer. It's this whole vicious cycle here with, with no earthly solution at hand. And Israel obviously has to do whatever it can to destroy Hamas. But in destroying Hamas, then, then innocent Palestinians suffer. And then whatever Israel has to do to free hostages, there are apparently many Americans among the hostages that were in Israel. I mean, it's a horrific situation. Paul in Romans 9 writes to the Romans and, and he, he it makes himself so clear. He uses five different expressions to basically say, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the spirit. I'm, not, I'm telling you the truth. He could have just written. He's an apostle. He could have just written. But five different ways he says, I'm not exaggerating at all. Why? I have unceasing anguish. I have continual sorrow in my heart for my people. That's probably part of why he says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The Paul who wrote rejoice always said, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. It, it, it's like some of you can relate to this as parents. You got one of your children very sick in the hospital, but it's the birthday for another child. So you have the party and you have the fun and you're happy, but you're in pain. That's what Paul said, sorrowful yet always rejoicing because he carried an unceasing anguish and pain because his people were cut off from the Messiah. And, and the reality is God's promises to keep Israel when he, he gave these clear promises that nothing could touch you, it was to a righteous nation. And Israel, although it's outstanding in many ways, is like every other nation. It, it's lost and it needs the Messiah. So there's not a guarantee of, of protection. It's not like we can just say, well, nothing could ever happen to Israel. Why? Why would we say that? So, so the, the trauma right now is unparalleled. The trauma across the entire nation. And you see all these cars of Israeli men up until a certain age, you all, unless you're religious and have an exemption, you, you, you stay in the reserves. So every Israeli man will serve three years, every Israeli woman two years in the military. That's mandatory for everybody. But then men, I think up to 45, still serve in the reserves. So they're all, I mean, thousands, tens of thousands drive to, to, to re-enlist and to go back out. And as they go into Gaza to try to destroy Hamas, the situation with the civilians, with the hostages makes it more difficult. Hamas and, and other terrorists for years have been famous, infamous for, say, putting their headquarters right in the middle of a hospital. So how do you take them out without hurting others? We would, we would get notes from when, when Israel was doing an operation in a difficult area. 
We would get prayer requests from our friends in Israel. Hey, our son's about to go in and pray because they have to follow all these guidelines to try to protect civilians, which puts them in danger. So the whole thing is just massively complex and, and difficult. And the only answer is God help. God help. I mean, people are sending out prayer lists that are very helpful and, 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 and good points to pray. But I look at it and say, God help. I don't know any other answer, but God help. So let me come back to the heart of God. Let me come back to the pain of God, to the burden of God, with him wanting to share his heart with us more deeply. And, and, and listen, it, it's wonderful to be pro-Israel and pray for Israel and celebrate, but what about carrying the pain? What, what about being real friends? What about saying, we understand ultimately that Israel's under attack because Satan wants to wipe the Jewish people out. Let me say it again. Jewish people need Jesus, Yeshua, like everybody else. And God cares for everybody in the Middle East. My heart is not to see everything go well for Israel and see Palestinians suffer. That's not my heart. It's not either or, right? Our heart is we're pro-God. Therefore, we want the best for everyone in the region. But the reason that Israel comes under such attack is because Satan wants to wipe the Jewish people out. That's the reality. And it's very clear to me, you stand with God, you stand against the devil. Therefore, you stand against these attempts. You stand against the spirit. And trust me, there are plenty of those who share enough hatred for Israel that they are rejoicing seeing these pictures of suffering. This one, I, I, I've tweeted some things out just saying, listen, whatever your position is, Whatever your position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if you rejoice over the slaughter, the butchering of elderly people, of women, of babies and children, your heart is evil. I've had people, I've had to block them one after another after another because of the Jew hatred and because of the lies. There's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of ugliness out there. In the mid-80s, I was getting ready to preach at my home congregation and I had just ministered on a Saturday night. Uh, there was a church meeting I was asked to speak at. Didn't really know that much about them, but God gave me a very specific word for them, specific scripture and message. And they said, wow, that was exact. That verse is the verse God gave us. That message was exactly what God was saying to us. So I was really hearing the Lord clearly. I went back home. It was late at night on a Saturday night, and I started praying, and I got overwhelmingly burdened. Little church of about 100 people. I was kind of the right-hand man to the pastor, like the prophetic leader with, with him. He was the senior pastor. I had some concerns. I felt there were some issues in his life that he was a little loose with. I had some concerns, but anyway, I get overwhelmingly burdened in prayer. Overwhelmingly burdened. Something terrible is going on here. Something terrible. He's opened the door to sin. Something is wrong. And then I get this terrible sense of foreboding. I'm just telling you a spiritual experience I went through. I'm not making a doctrine out of this. It's a spiritual experience I went through. I get this terrible foreboding. Oh, no. He's opened the door to the enemy. One of his kids is going to die. So I start praying passionately. It's very real to me. It's as real as if it's going to happen. I start praying passionately against it. And then this even more horrific foreboding hits me. Because you have interceded 
gotten in the way of this attack. It's now coming your way. We have two little daughters. One of your children is going to die. It's like, no, no, that can't be God. It's not God. It's crazy. This is. So I'm, I'm, I'm telling the Lord, this can't be you. And immediately, well, what about Ezekiel 24 when his wife dies as a sign to Israel about going into exile and suffering and whatever I'm throwing up at God is something's thrown back at me. So I'm, I'm in a panic now. This is totally real. I thought, I'm not hearing. And God reminds me, you heard accurately earlier tonight when you preached, didn't you? You were in the spirit earlier. You heard earlier. So I, I'm so, such as overwrought. It's about 2, 2.30 in the morning. I wake Nancy up. I, our bedrooms are upstairs, ours and the kids. I wake her up. I said, honey, someone's going to die. Someone's going to die. I was just overwhelmed. I wake my wife up in the middle of the night. So she gets up. We go downstairs. We're praying. And suddenly I just get on my face and begin weeping and sobbing uncontrollably for my daughter's life, just weeping, sobbing. And then I hear the Lord. I mean, I was hoping in the back of my mind that this was the case, but, but I had a feel at first. God said to me, I wanted you to pray for the church as if it was your own child dying, because that's how I feel. And I, I, I mean, the relief, you can imagine the relief. Went up and kissed my daughter on the head while she was sleeping. But that sense of relief, but it was that real. It was that real. It was that deep. And the next morning, pastor and his wife came in. I sat him down. I just gave him the strongest rebuke I've ever given any human being. Something's wrong here, man. Something's pleaded with him. And he looked at me like, there's no, no big deal. We're good. Not long after that, he took off with another lady, destroyed his ministry. Just a horrible story. All right, so it's about five years later, 1991. I'm speaking with Mike Bickle. He's got a conference, an Israel conference. Some of my friends are there. And um, opening message, Ruven Doron, a dear Israeli brother, speaks about the dry bones of Ezekiel. No, I'm sorry, speaks about the book of Ruth and talks about just had a baby. He and his wife had another baby, six weeks old, Rachel. And, and use, it said she's this type and sign of Israel and begins to talk about that. And it said the church has to be a Ruth like the Gentile church is to be like a Ruth, the Gentile, to help birth God's purposes for us. It was a beautiful message. But I remember he mentioned especially about his daughter. And then he brought another message, and then I was going to speak the next day. And here he spoke about the dry bones of Ezekiel. And towards the end of the message, he said something that struck me as very odd. He said his daughter Rachel was born during the Gulf War, found out subsequently that he knew it was going to be a girl, but he thought if it was a boy, he would have named her Israel. He said, because she's a type and sign of Israel. She represents Israel. And, and he said she was born during the Gulf War. There was a storm in, in Iowa where they were. And, and, he, and he said she carries the pain and the wounds of Israel. And when she gets older, she's going to need to get inner healing. And I thought that's, that's, I don't know where I stand theologically on that. I just thought that's, that's odd. I just listened. Well, I, I go back to, to the house where I'm staying actually with David Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill's son. Stand in his home. And I've, I've preached without notes for decades. I've taught whole years of classes without decades. Just a lot of stuff is in my head when God gives me an idea. Everything falls into place. But I feel stirred. Get up and write notes down. So I start writing these notes down for the message, a baptism of tears for Israel. Start writing it down. 
and I, I had read the words of a Scottish Presbyterian. They were having a conference and talking about Israel's salvation. And they said, what's the great pressing need in, in Jewish ministry? They said, more tears, more tears. So my message was the need of a baptism of tears for Israel. And the Lord lays on my heart, share the story about your daughter. And I protested. I said, Lord, I can't do that. There are a thousand people. I don't know them. They're strangers to me. I know very few people. This is too intimate. And he said, share the story about your daughter and tell the people they must pray for Israel as if it's their own child dying because that's how God feels. So I said, yes, Lord, then fell asleep. On the way to the meeting, David Ravenhill and I barely talked. He realized I was just kind of caught up in focus, so we didn't talk much. We get there, and something just seemed funny in the atmosphere. Something didn't seem right. Mike Bickle sits down next to me. He, says, he said, Mike, he said, uh, I can't stay. He said, something really wild happened, and, and I have to go. And I said, what? He said, well, Ruben and Mary Lou woke up this morning, and their baby's dead. I said, what? The baby girl's dead? He said, yeah. When I was with Mike and his wife a few years ago, they were saying, yeah, we remember, we remember we were in the room next to them when we heard the screaming. It's no known cause, just gone. And he said, I don't know if, when you want to make the announcement. I said, oh, I know exactly when to make the announcement. And I finished the message. I spoke it with brokenness and pain, calling for a baptism of tears for Israel and for God to deepen us as believers and take us past our superficiality. And then I told the story, how God wanted me to pray for the church as if it was his own child dying, because that's how God feels. And here we've been hearing about little Rachel as a type and sign of Israel. And I said, I've got a terrible announcement to make to you. And I share it with everyone. You just picture the devastation, the shock. I said, and God, God wants us to pray for Israel as if it's his own child dying because that's how he feels. I said, so please, let's pray for Ruven and Mary Lou. And let's pray for Israel. And the place just dissolved and wailing and screaming, as you can imagine. Right now, Israel's in the greatest crisis it's been in in its modern history. And in a horrifically hellish situation and who knows what's happening with hostages and what could come out of it. Israel needs our prayers right now. And God would really like to share some of his heart with each of us. So I'd like you to stand to your feet with me. I'm going to pray and then Pastor Chris will come up. Let me remind you again, those who sow with tears reap with joy. There was actually greater joy in the worship in the second service than in the first. And I believe it's because we were praying with a burden in the first. I don't walk around depressed, hopeless, but there are times when we have to just weep. And it doesn't mean work something up, but as God burdens you, please pray these coming days. However he burdens you to pray, whatever aspect, if you don't know how to pray, just say, God help, pray in the spirit. Israel needs your prayers right now. Israel needs the Lord. I mean, this be a time when, when Jew and Muslim, Palestinian, Israeli, others in the region, everyone turns to God because there is no other hope. Abba, Father, share your heart with us. 
Take us deeper, I pray. Give us your heart for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Give us your heart for all the people in that region. And we're asking you, Abba, Abba, Father, help, help. Stretch out your hand and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you. I want to first invite, if you're a parent who has a child that needs a breakthrough, physically, spiritually, whatever it may be, go and just lift your hand where you are. If you have a child that you know that needs a breakthrough. And church, if you could just see the parents that are lifting their hands, and let's go ahead and just surround them and lay our hands on them. Let's stand in the gap for our family, for our brothers and sisters. If you're with them, go ahead and just begin praying and ministering over them. If you're standing in the gap for a child, just begin giving your child to the Lord. Just even with your own words, just tell him to say, he is yours or she is yours. They are yours. Yeah, Father, you're the Lord of the breakthrough. You're the Lord of the breakthrough. I declare Jesus is the Lord of your child's breakthrough. King Jesus, you're the Lord of their breakthrough. We declare every child represented here, we declare breakthrough. Breakthrough. We declare those that are lost would be found. Would you find the lost ones even where they are in this moment? Would you go find them? Find them in their rooms. Holy Spirit, would you go, would you go, would you go, would you go find them? We ask for dreams to be loose in our lost sons and daughters. Visions. Holy Spirit, would you interrupt our prodigal children with visions in this moment? Our children that need physical healing breakthroughs. We say their bodies are yours. We say their body's not their own. Their body's your temple. Would you touch their bodies? We ask for you to do only what you can do. We ask for your healing touch. We ask for your healing touch. Lord, we even ask in this moment, any child that's being represented in this room that is down the hall, we ask, we say, go and heal. Go and heal. Go and heal the babies. Go and heal the toddlers. Go and heal the elementary students. Holy Spirit, would you go through the halls now? Would you go through the rooms now? Would you touch your children? Would you touch my middle child? We ask for your healing touch. Healing. Skin disease be healed. Skin be cured. Disorders be brought to order. We declare everything that's out of order, that's not according to the word, will be brought into order according to your word. Again, if you're standing and representing a child, just again, just tell the Lord, say, they're yours. They're yours. They're yours. Well, if we can turn our hearts and attention to just as Dr. Brown shared, praying for Israel as if it's our own child. I think of the own burdens I carry as a father for my children. 
9 a.m. service, services started turning into a prayer meeting. So I want to invite you to posture your heart as we engage into a prayer meeting, asking for the heart of the Father. Let our fervency of prayers for our big brother, his first love, we would catch his heart for them. Father, give us your heart. Give us your heart for the ones you call your royal priesthood. Give us your heart for the ones you call your chosen people. You call holy nation. You call ones that are set apart. Give us your heart for the ones you have grafted us in. Let us carry the ones that we have been able to partake in with. Give us your heart. Give us your heart. Give us your heart for Israel. Give us your heart. Give us your heart, Father. Give us your heart with your own words. Don't rely on my words, with your own words. Just ask, ask him. Ask him for his heart. Ask him for his heart. Spirit, the Lord say, this moment is not for your words to be heard over Israel, but for you to hear my words over them. Would you open our ears, Father, to hear your whispers over your firstborn? I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it sounds like. But just begin to allow the Spirit of God to open your ears to hear his prayers for his firstborn. Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. 
You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you'll be called Hepzibah. My delight is in her and your land, Baulah, married. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Lord, we declare that Israel will be saved. We declare that Israel will be delivered from temporary trials until Israel turns to you and is fully delivered from all trials. We declare everything Satan means for evil and destruction will one day be turned for good. That out of mourning and pain and agony will come joy and rejoicing and hope in life. We declare that you are God of Israel, God over Israel. And for your own name's sake, lest the nations blaspheme, for your own name's sake, act. For your glory, act. Stretch out your hand and do what only you can do and hear the cries and the tears of your people until they turn into praise and celebration for your honor and glory. You are king, you will do it. You are king, you will do it. You are king, you will do it.
We declare encounters of Jesus in Israel. As your hands are extended to Israel, before we leave this place, let's let his spirit pray perfect prayers through us. Like Dr. Brown mentioned in Romans 8, that when we don't know what to pray, what we ought, that his spirit prays what we ought. Everybody in this place, just begin praying in our heavy language. Hands extended towards Israel. Let his spirit pray perfect prayers through you. If you're believing for this gift, just declare, you are holy, you are holy, you are holy. Let's just declare, say Israel is yours, Lord. Say the Middle East is yours, Lord. Say it again, Israel is yours, Lord. The Middle East is yours, Lord. Last service, Mercy Culture, I had this vision of maps of Israel being in our different homes. And in this moment, I see you, not that we have maps to hand out, I see you taking a map. I get this vision, the spiritual daydream in the moment of you taking this map of Israel and taking it with you out of this place. So if you could just grab a hold of Israel. Father, we ask, would you do what we've asked for your heart? Would you cause us, every child, every teenager, every adult, would you cause us to leave with your heart? Would you teach us your ways to have your heart for your people? Would you teach us how to pray and how to carry your first love? Would you teach the mercy culture how to carry nations in our hearts? Would you teach us how to cause our homes to be places of intercession? Would you teach us how to fortify and strengthen nations from a distance? Would you teach us how to partner with the heavens over Israel from our homes? Mercy Coach, I feel my spirit, the Lord saying your homes are bases for strategic intercession. Just visualize your home right now. It's a base for strategic intercession. It's a base for targeted attacks from heaven. It's a base to be on the front line. It's a base for heavenly defense. Go to just visualize the time and moment that you will intercede for Israel, wherever it is, whenever it is. Just take a picture right now and visualize where is it and when is it. Dr. Brown. I was uh, just notified there's a young man here, Israeli, part of the IDF, the army, trying to get back. He's already lost. Uh, colleagues, friends. So he's here with his sister. If you just come up, we, we want to. So could you just share what was happening? Just speak from your heart to everyone.
I've never experienced something like that. I am a mom of two, and I see children the age of my kids, seeing their parents kill in front of their eyes, and taken away from their parents. And uh, we know it's a spiritual war. And people in Israel, they know God, and we just ask him to, to remember us. And he uh, is my brother, and he's about to, uh, he's trying to get on a flight to go to Israel to fight. Yeah. And they called him to come. And my other brother, I have another brother who's already there and fighting there. I'm, I'm an Israeli. I was uh, yeah. born there, lived there my whole life. And my husband is American. After we got married, I moved here. Yeah. But my, my whole family is there. Yeah. And he's lost some of his colleagues already. What? Some of his friends have died. Yes. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he has already a few friends he knows that yeah. uh, died. Let's, so let's real life. Will, would you just come up and, and join us? Thank you, Lord. We invite any Mercy Culture pastors to come and surround our friends here as well. Father, we just thank you for this amazing family. They're our family, God. This amazing Jewish Savior, Jesus. You weep. You weep over Jerusalem. You wept over it long before. You're weeping over it now. We intercede for your family, Jesus. It's our family. We're grafted in. God, we thank you so much. Soon coming, King, for your soon coming. But Lord, in the midst of this tragedy, God, we ask you that you work all things together for your good. And in the midst of it, Lord, would you give us your heart for the nation of Israel, God? You said Zechariah 12 and 10. You give us the grace to supplicate. You give us grace to supplicate and that you would show us, Lord, what it's like to weep for your nation as our own, our own son, our own daughter. Give us tears, Lord. Father, just as you wept over your son, your firstborn son, would you give us tears for Israel as if it was our own firstborn? Break our hearts for the things that break your heart. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Keep him safe. Keep him safe. Keep their families safe. 
intervene as only you can. May this be one of these times where amazing light comes out of the darkness and where people say it was the hand of God. Do it, Abba. And Lord, we're here available whenever you want to move on us to pray. However you want to burden us, fast pray, Lord. Here we are. Until this is through, here we are. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Thank you so much, Mercy Culture. Thank you. Mercy Culture, I want, to, I want to keep our friends up here with Dr. Brown. Just for one last thing is, last, last service, we, we marched our feet. The Lord showed a vision of peace. The armies of heaven are releasing shoes of peace. So even just as our friends are right here, I felt like they were supposed to hear a sound of marching in this moment. And so if we could just with our own feet, just start stomping on the floor. We declare that you would go and choose a peace. We declare that you would hear an army that wears the boots of peace. We, de we declare peace go before you. Peace come after you and peace surrounds you. We declare the ears of the Middle East would be open to hear the armies of heaven coming with peace. As you're marching, just begin declaring peace. Just begin declaring peace. 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 On the count of three, let's just shout peace. One. Well, it's an honor to have you all with us. We love you. We celebrate you. Mercy Culture. It's an honor to be able to cover nations, to be a part of what God is doing. And so as you're going home today, pray for Israel. Ask God for his heart. I'm going to invite up the altar workers up to the front. Any way we can pray for you. Any way we can partner with you spiritually, please come on up. We want to strengthen and fortify. It's still the year of dunamis with you. There are three ways to give online. You can text or also the boxes on the way out. Let's go to lift our hands to receive the benediction. Father, we ask that you would teach us your ways, that we would truly know you and find your favor. Have a good week, Mercy Culture. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Mercy Culture Church. If this podcast has blessed you, we'd like to encourage you to share it with a friend. To learn more about us, find us on social media and online at mercyculture.com.